0: Welcome again, everyone, to Ramdas Here and Now. I'm Raghu Marcus. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to uh, present a Ramdas talk. Uh, I don't know when this was, maybe early 90s, late 80s, something like that. And it's on practices. So, this uh, would seem to be something very practical. Because uh, how often do we say practice, practice, practice to get some leverage over the cottonness that we are in our minds? Um, but it actually is more complex as usual with Ramdas, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a a chance to get an idea of what this comprises. This really wonderful talk. Uh, I want to shout out for our partners, 1440.org, 1440 Multiversity, who have just the most marvelous people, teachers, and uh, leaders, thought leaders, and do these incredible workshops near uh, Santa Cruz. Uh, I, and I'll give you an example. Uh, like, I was looking through their schedule. Go to 1440.org, and you'll see their schedule. And they have a lot going on. So a number of the people, I had no idea. I'd never heard of them before. But then I just looked and I saw this woman named Martha Beck and she had a, uh, a weekend workshop surfing the waves of change. And I thought, okay, that's up our alley. I should do something on my, pod, my other podcast, Mind Rolling. Uh, on Be Here Now Network, and I had Martha on there. I didn't know her from Adam, and she was just utterly fantastic. She was so present and so personable and so loving. And God, I mean, it was just a, a wonderful experience. Now, I could easily have, uh, had I been near there, I could have gone and... Uh, to her workshop. And I would have just had an experience with somebody that I, I really didn't know. And I only liked the, uh, what I read about what the workshop was going to be. So, uh, 1440 really presents, uh, quite, quite incredible, uh, programs. And, uh, we're really happy to have them as a, as a partner. Uh, now, the other thing, uh, I want to play a song. I haven't done that on this podcast, I don't know, forever or maybe never. I do it on Mind Rolling. Uh, we bring up music all the time when we do play songs. Not, I'm going to do it more often, actually, because uh, I think music, in terms of what Ram Dass talks about today, is uh, a wonderful practice. And uh, so here uh, we've done this thing, uh, which is a wonderful collaboration with uh, an artist named East Forest. And he's a friend of Trevor Hall's, for those of you who know Trevor. And uh, in fact, Trevor on this track is featured. So it's a real family affair. But basically, East Forest who uh, went to Maui and he had a, a couple of days chatting with Ramdas, and he brought this is last summer, and he brought back uh, the tapes and he cut them up, having a, a theme. So every song has a theme. This one's called Mind Karma. It's extraordinary. I never even heard Ramdas ever talk about karma in this in this way. And there's a beautiful video if you go to Ramdas.org, hit the banner at the top. Uh, and it'll take you to a page that talks about this whole collaboration between our Ramdas and East Forest, and at the bottom is a wonderful video of the song, uh, "Mind Karma," done by our own J.R. Morton. It's really great. It is uh, so very cool and fits the song so very well. So here it is. I'm going to play this song. Okay. Enjoy. Mind karma. Our
1: karma is our mind. in the way
0: security and fear. See you So what did you think about that? By the way, talking about thinking about that, you guys uh, send some comments to us uh, of any sort. Uh, there, you can go to the site or go to info at beherenownetwork.com. And then uh, and if you want to send it directly to me, I'll be happy to it'll get to me and I will be happy to respond. but you know also like feedback. We're sitting here, like uh, I'm all alone in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> okay Ram Dass on practices so here's the premise each of us is the manifestation of a unique karmic predicament that unique karmic predicament has to do with balance of mind and heart and energies it has to do with the whole mosaic of attraction, aversion, attachments, etc. of our mind so what practice do we do to get free? And therein he, he launches to even the meaning of, of us uh, attempting to do practices, of doing them from the wrong place, uh, from trying to accomplish, and then a- allowing for that to happen, and, and then looking deeper and deeper when we make different mistakes. We do things that aren't really part of the nature that we might follow, like, like me, I'm totally into music, uh, and uh, I love doing chanting. That's my, along with meditation, main practice. And he, said, he talks about looking to intuitive heart. And uh, developing a trust in that intuitive heart is, is very, very important. Now, in order to do that, one needs to look into the nature of our minds and So that we can see all of the m- kinds of motivations, the, kind, the ways in which w- we have uh, this cherished world, uh, which, as Ram Dass calls it, it, actually, once you deep, dip into the uh, identity that's deep in the content of the mind, your true identity, your cherished world just becomes another set of phenomena. And, of course, there can be a lot of pain in that. But only when we do that is, in my opinion, can we start to connect with intuitive heart, which really leads us to, in this case, the right practices for that moment in time. So, yeah. Uh, the, And I have to say, and of course I've said this before, on on my part, on mind rolling and on on Ramdas here. I mean, the way in which we were given this whole grounding in b- Buddhist uh, mindfulness through our uh, relationship with uh, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, and Joseph Goldstein, particularly. And in, in this uh, talk, actually, Ramdas talks about studying with Joseph. Tells a, a, a lovely little. Anecdote, actually, but because of that, the way in which that is, is no oxymoron here, vipassana and devotion, for us uh, that come out of this tradition from uh, Nimkaroli Baba, and the uh, the way in which that vipassana, that mindfulness meditation around the breath, starting around the breath that allowed the heart really to open up to presence. And so uh, I find that the this combination, I'm really happy that I have that basic uh, instruction in Vipassana. It has served me well over the years. And I've heard Ram Dass talk about how he did a meditation course in the East in, in uh, Burma. And... And how difficult it was—he <laughs> was there for many weeks, sitting day, you know, from early morning till the evening, and but how it allowed a whole different perspective, of course, but a way in which his heart was able to crack open uh, differently, or more fully, shall we say. Uh, with this practice of uh, this mindful uh, meditation practice of vipassana, so yeah, so Ramdas talks a little bit about that, and I have uh, completely in in alignment. Of course, actually, Ramdas, I wasn't on the bus. For those of you who know that story, where Ramdas got on the bus after being his first uh, vipassana courses in Bodh Gaya in 1970, in the winter 70-71, and then ended up meeting Maharaji, who he couldn't find in Allahabad at the Mela, which is a whole other kind of a, it's it's a famous story. I wasn't on that bus, and then when we went up, we went way up uh, that summer into the Himalayas to uh, do meditation session with one of those teachers, whose name is uh, Manindra, Uh, that got canceled. So it ended up Maharaji sent me to be up there with this group that had already had that practice, uh, me and somebody else. And uh, Ramdas ended up giving me the basic instructions, basic, uh, more of the one pointed part, the concentration part, the focus part, uh, but the most primary part being uh, just being with breath. So that was tremendously important to me can't tell you okay what else is in here our entire life is practice i mean that's the most <laughs> uh, essential point um great story around crazy wisdom and what maharaji did to ramdas until around uh Getting us all, getting rid of us all, to get on the on the local uh, uh, VW bus that Ramdas had and go back to the hotel. Get rid of them. Um, so one one last thing that I think is important, you know, as you listen to this, to really consider is the way in which we are so hard and judgmental on ourselves when we start doing practices and. We, th- we are, w- you know, it's natural to wait for results, and of course that is very counterproductive. <laughs> wait for results, productive, uh, counterintuitive, really. Uh, so, there are times that, you know, the onion layers peel off, and they they need to peel off a little naturally. You can't be ripping. And maybe there's times, and this is what Ram Dass talks about, where you're not quite ready to let go of some of the stuff, neurotic tendencies, habitual patterns, whatever. So well, you need to create a boundary. This is a mental boundary. This is really interesting and really profound, actually. Not boundaries to push away the divine, to push away the presence, but boundaries to acknowledge the stage and level of your development what you know you have to trust what you can transmute and what you can and allow for the timing to be real if you, if we can get that kind of space around our practice uh, that's a powerful thing because it just takes out it undercuts all that bs around a should have would have could have guilty of, uh, this ain't working, you know, I'm still completely caught in this particular neurotic tendency, whatever it may be, it'll cut out all that judgmental self-talk. Uh, it, it, this is, a, I think, a great idea to frame that for ourselves so that we can uh, naturally start to transmute uh, these tendencies, so I th- just a, a wonderful wonderful uh, little piece in this thing and uh, oh last but not least, yeah, he t- you know the saints in India and I would say saints is too loose a term because there are many saints that are not uh, completely finished beings but Siddhas is is the, this is what we've been taught by our mentor KK Shah. Siddhas is a whole other thing, and very, very few saints turn into siddhas, if that means anything either. But the siddhas are known in India as the living dead. Right? Why? Oh, there's many reasons why. Uh, Obviously, completely uh, not involved in any self whatsoever, and they're just here because of being a conduit for people to reach God without being teachers. They don't teach anything, they just be. And they're called the living dead because they bear the unbearable. I don't know where Ram Dass heard that, but I love it. They bear the unbearable, so they're the living dead. Think about it. This is Ram Dass, here and now talking about practice and uh, practice makes perfect here on be here now network go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. and uh we've got a host of fabulous people by the way. Hey, none the least is uh Krishna Das did I say this last time? I don't care. you got to li- Das has some fabulous podcasts. you got to listen. Go to Be Here Now Network, and and, uh, yeah, Krishnas is, he's a kirtan singer. Yeah, he's a kirtan singer, but he's a fabulous teacher who is uh, just absolutely practical and real, okay? You're not going to find a lot of that, and his podcasts are wonderful, okay? So go there, and uh, and, uh, also Dale Borglum, Ramdev, he's also of that stripe and a great meditation teacher. There you go. We'll see you next week.
1: In practices, each of us is is manifest, the manifestation of a unique karmic predicament. And that unique karmic predicament has to do with balances of mind and heart and energies. It has to do with the whole web and mosaic of the... Attachments, attractions, and aversions of our mind. And so from there, what practice do you do to get free? Well, the answer really is that there is no rule book in this game. There is no one practice that's going to work. Each of us is in a unique predicament, and we have to listen to hear what way is going to work for us. And we have to recognize that at different stages of our development, different practices work. When you initially start out, you often optimize your strong points. If you're a person of heart, you are attracted to singing to God. Later on, you may be drawn to working with the fire of the places which are really not the ones you've led with in your personality that is you go to quiet the mind even though you're a devotional person i have been as you know accused many many times of eclecticism which is often treated as a dirty word i mean people like swami satchitananda had said you must not dig a lot of shallow wells you must dig one well deeply and I hear him, and I, I, I understand what he's saying. I can't help myself. I mean, my, my practice, which is Guru Kripa, or grace of the guru, how does that express itself in form? It's led me to take teachings in various forms of meditation. It's led me to devotional and ecstatic practices. It's led me to energy things. It's led me to working with LSD and psychedelics. And I have, I respect and honor the truth, my inner truth that guides me to what practices I am drawn to. And other people tell me what they think I should do. And I run that into my intuitive heart. And I listen and I process and then I do what I feel I need to do. I feel I the closest I have to God is in the deepest part of my intuitive heart and it's not going to come through anybody else's saying things. Even Maharaji said many things to me that I have never done. But I felt them working on me and working on me and working on them because if I imitated or did what he told me, I would end up imitating something that I wasn't. And yet sometimes I practice by doing those kinds of things just to see the nature of the clinging of my mind. And what I have found is that very simple, I used to watch Maharaji and he would be going like this all day long with his fingers. And it was like his fingers were the mala beads. And he was constantly, Ram, 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 Ram. And you know he kept a diary. I mean, it's interesting that Maharaji would keep a diary. And then you say, well, what did he write in his diary? It was two pages every day he kept his diary. And if you look at the pages, and there are books of it, two pages of Ram, 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 Ram. He was noting every significant event that happened all the day. It was a real diary of. <laughs> and you think, now there's Maharaji. It's like Ananda Mai Ma, is she devoted to or is she? Is Maharaji, is he or is he devoted to? And the beauty is the Hanuman's line to Ram, when Ram says, who are you? And Hanuman says, when I don't know who I am, I serve you. When I know who I am, I am you and the deliciousness of that dance, of going in and out of that. As your practices work, and the funny thing about practices, as I said the other day, is that practices are traps. And for them to work, you must be trapped by them. But any practice worth its salt ultimately self-destructs, to take you beyond itself. But you've got to go into it first. I mean, I think that's what Nunn is talking about, actually. So if I do this, I mean, I started doing my beads in 1967. And I have done them consistently since 1967. And they are so much a part of my consciousness now. And they are so deeply in my being. I can spend a long time caught in my mind in a discussion in which I really think the dialogue's important and it's going somewhere, and my, I'm wise, and I know, and they don't, and I'll teach, and I disagree, and we're having a debate, and then, and I'm doing this all the time completely unconsciously, and then suddenly I feel the bead in my finger, and into, forcing its way in between the cracks of my analytic mind, is a strangled rum (laughs) and it just turns the whole thing into it's the way like one amoeba turns your whole fecal matter into liquid (laughs) isn't that amazing it's the same thing it just turns it all into shit right away it's just incredible so the practices uh and the practices are so varied. Some of the practices focus on the heart. And, and people start their devotional practices with deep interpersonal loving of. And then they go from emotional, from a kind of romanticism in devotion. But you'll notice when we do kirtan, when you watch Jai doing kirtan, uh, and Diana, you'll see a process going on where they might start from somebody doing something and the thought of loving, and then it turns into a deeper, it leaves romanticism behind and turns into a, um, a taste of the love itself. It, it is the love, it is the, the devotion ceases to be so grossly dualistic. You're singing to Ram or to Krishna to Shiva, but in the way it's Shiva singing to itself, it gets so clear and it gets very deep and present. And even as you're in your ecstasy, there is a solidity and a presence and a clarity about it. And when that devotional practice moves to that level of devotion, the mind becomes very quiet. The same quietness you would have had if you had been sitting and doing meditative practice. And at that point, you can feel as you enter into these altered states of these other states of consciousness, which are only altered if you look at them from here, these other planes of reality, you can feel you move into other energy domains and the whole energy system of your body is metamorphized and changed. So if you went through energy systems in... the in um, the work with yogi bhajan and the work with, uh, with muktananda and shaktipat and all that if you push with the energy system as the energy moves you it forces you into these other planes of consciousness where the heart can open where the mind can quiet and in the same way as i said the other day when you work in the mind to concentrate to deepen your samadhi to deepen your mindfulness to do your meditation practices, you will see that at first they are seem to be pitted against your devotion, that they feel dry to just follow your breath all the time. What happened to my love of God? What happened to all the rich rushes of all those stories and the delight and the yum-yum and the yearning? And all of it is mind stuff. Because in... Following the breath, what you're doing is dealing with the mechanics of the mind, not the content of the mind. And for those of us who are, for all of us, whose identity is deep in the content of the mind, with our personalities and our histories and our yearnings and our seeking after enlightenment and our being on spiritual journeys and being seekers and all that stuff, from the mindfulness meditation point of view, these are just more phenomena. And it's hard, it is hard to go into a world where your cherished world becomes just another set of phenomena. You don't want to let go. You feel like you're losing, you're losing your heritage, your richness, your meaning, everything in life. But as you surrender into that, you will see that the heart opens into the presence and you are the presence has in it the fullness of heart it's where love and power and truth and beauty all start to come together and as your meditative practice gets deeper your heart becomes wide open and you just feel this quality that you are swimming in it if you think i am swimming in it it's another phenomenon of course I mean, I've had the experience of having so much peace in a meditative practice. And it was a peace that I realized I had been so hungry for all my life. I was studying with Joseph Goldstein. It was such a beautiful peace. And I went to Joseph and I said, Joseph, I don't know how to thank you for guiding me as my my teacher into this quality of peace. It is so deep and so extensive. And Joseph said, that's wonderful, that's fine. Now please go back and follow your breath. (laughs) Because the experience of peace was just another place to hide. And it's interesting the way in which rapture, bliss, peace, equanimity, all the experiences are the experience of emptiness. It is still not the absolute reality. It is still dualistic. And not to put down, but to understand the different domains. The argument of being free to be beyond relative and then to dance in relative. What a delight. Then you're in the leela, the play, the delight of God. You are God at play. You are part of the leela of it. So the frustrating part of spiritual practice is That you can't grab at it like I tried with drugs. I tried to grab it, but the grabbing of it is itself a stance. And you can't do violence to your existing karma. It's just got to, there's nothing wrong. Drugs are a very useful upaya if you know how to use them and you're in a safe space and you are feeling comfortable. But ultimately, the grabbing at enlightenment is a trap. And yet you aim there. And you yearn, and finally you realize you can't grab. You develop a certain kind of patience. As you come into timelessness, what's the rush? Where are you going anyway? You see the whole journey you were on. It's like the one who wants enlightenment comes right up to the gate, but never goes through. Not in the sense that Jamil was talking about, about the gates where you can go through into deeper and deeper places, but the ultimate gate, nobody gets through only nobody gets free and that's the fun of it somebody can come right up to the gate but only nobody gets free (laughs) but if you're prematurely nobody it's just somebody being nobody so there you are see that's the fun of it you keep getting yum 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 and that's why you begin to treasure the people like Maharaji who are crazy wisdom teachers because the, the, the truth is so far beyond rational, analytic, linear understanding. How do you undercut somebody else's linearity and rational imposition of, I want to understand this, I want to know what I know, and a lot of the crazy wisdom lineages which are incredibly attractive to me. I mean, I just love them when somebody completely undercuts my game. I remember one day Maharaji was with Maharaji and Maharaji said Ramdas these people the westerners are all disturbing me put them on take them on the bus and take them back to Nanita. So I got everybody on the bus and I said Maharaji wants us to go back to Nanita. And I was like he had empowered me I was Hanuman. <laughs> and then one of the rascals Krishnadas got off the bus and he went back to Maharaji and can we stay here tonight? Maharaji says, okay. So Krishna does came back, and he started to tell one person after another. And I was sitting there, no, don't, nobody leave the bus. And one by one, they were getting off the bus. It was... Now, we may have practices that you do in the morning before you meet the people who won't understand what you're doing. (laughs) Or, Or you might have practices that you can keep in your pocket or all kinds of practices. But ultimately, appreciate that your entire life is your practice. At first it starts out that i practice on sunday morning or saturday night or every morning for 20 minutes but ultimately what else is there because until you are free you are caught in suffering as long as you are caught in suffering no matter how compassionate you are you cannot free others from suffering and when you look at the web of life and you open to your identity with all of it and you feel the whole nature of the, the the beast the whole nature of the the suffering the freedom from suffering the see the cause of ignorance when it's all inside you and you want to liberate others not out of personal desire but just out of itself liberating itself then the work on the instrument becomes what life is about and you feel joy in being able to transform your life, so more and more you see it as a vehicle for awakening. Gandhi described in his autobiography, his title of his autobiography, was Experiments in Truth, Experiments in Truth. That his whole life was approaching truth, which is God, which has no form, the truth of absolute reality, approaching it. And all of his life was seen as an experiment in truth, his relation to his wife, his relationship to to the British Empire, his work in the villages. When somebody said, what wonderful work, how kind you are to the people in these villages, he says, I am only working on myself. And that wasn't a selfish thing. It was an understanding of the interplay between the inner work and the outer world. So your life becomes your process. How you do it all. How you brush your teeth. How you go to the toilet. How do you take a shower. Does it remind you or does it put you to sleep? It's fascinating to just start to look at the little components of your life and see how they are helping you to remember. And... um, one of the major ways of of remembering is humor and it is humor you can see this week there's been a lot of lightness and humor it's not humor at the expense of anybody except yourself it's the humor that's reminding you it's the reminding humor it's the lightness the humor and uh, i just feel that it's As Wavy Gravy said, if you don't have a sense of humor, it just isn't funny. (laughs) (laughs) The stance of listening, of listening ever more deeply, of really learning, I hope those small group exercises and the way in which In kirtan and in sound work and in singing, we were listening our way into truth and learning to listen, to hear what your unique practices are, to listen, to hear how this moment in life can awaken because every situation is so multiply determined, that your rational analytic mind can't really know what the hell's going on, even though we would love to think we could. We have gotten so enamored of the city of our prefrontal lobes that we have forgotten how finite they are. It's just another power. It's just another power. And the thing that we have, learnt, we have lacked our trust in is the Wisdom, the inherent wisdom in us, the the sense in the heart, mind wisdom, the intuitive wisdom that exists as you extricate yourself from identifying with your with any specific thought form. So that people say to me, Why, when we ask you a question, are you silent first? Because what I do is empty to experience the gestalt of you asking the question the tone of your voice of your as you're asking the question the your what history must have led to asking the question What is my whole history that has brought me to an understanding of what your question is? What is everybody else's need in this room about the question? What is the whole thing about what time lunch is? I mean, I can't sit and linearly analyze that. Well, now, let's see. We could have a question that'll be four sentences long, but we gotta remember, I've just gotta empty and empty and empty until all of these forces are like a wash in me. And they're all just part of the ocean of my awareness. And then out of that will come some response that is in some way relevant to what you said or irrelevant, depending. I mean, that's none of my business. It just, I trusted the universe to come forth with response. And it's fun to start to practice trusting the universe in the way you live your life. It's really fun. I mean, I get more calls or more things than I can deal with. And I don't know, sometimes, which one, and I trust. I say, I'll do this one, I won't do that one. And somebody says, well, why did you do that? I say, I don't know. And it infuriates people, it infuriates people. I I mean, I have a right to be, undoubtedly, but somehow it just didn't come up. I don't think you can use it as a cop-out, but you certainly can develop a deeper and deeper trust in your intuitive wisdom, in the wisdom font fount that is pouring forth from inside you. And that intuitive wisdom tells you which fires you will burn you up because you're still too attached to somebodyness and which fires will purify, as Jai was talking about yesterday. There are certain fires that liberate, certain fires that burn. And at one, when you're a final level, like Ramana Maharshi, who's dying of cancer of the arm, and people want to treat him and give him pain medication and so on, he says, don't be silly, it's just, you know, just stuff. And in other words, even that isn't a fire for him, which for most of us would be a tremendous fire because he was in the space where when they said, Bhagwan, don't leave us, don't leave us, and they all started to cry. He said, don't be silly, where could I go? I'm already here, already here. I have always been the same, says Anandamayama. And so knowing what fires you can transmute and which ones you can't, leads you to define the boundaries. Not boundaries to push away God, but boundaries to acknowledge the stage and the level of your development. And there are a lot of things that I haven't dealt with in my life, and maybe I'm not going to in this lifetime. And maybe as my love of God and presence and spaciousness gets deeper, they will all fall away and be irrelevant, and maybe they won't. But I have to trust what I can transmute and what I can't because I can feel that certain things I get into are so thick and I get so stuck that I'm not yet ready to work with them. And I really allow the timing. And I'm not saying, oh my God, I'm stuck in this, I'll never. And I used to do that all the time. I used to see all of my neuroses and my, all my clingings and stuff like that as standing between me and God. I don't see that now. I see them as something that may remain, but the meaning of them may change, and they may just turn into my style of being manifest, rather than my obstacles. And that'll happen very gracefully. It seems to be happening gracefully. I invite you to feel that life is this kind of a process, so that when you feel you fell off the path, you just say, ah, falling off the path, more process. Because where could you go? You are, Maharaji said, I am always in communion with you. God's always there. You may forget, and it may be a hell for you, but the power of that forgetting will affect the richness of the remembering whenever it happens. And it will also affect every subsequent forgetting. So don't think you fall off the path. I think that's a fraudulent concept. I just can't buy it. I don't, I don't hear it. I meet people who tell me they fell off the path 20 years ago and I look into their hearts and their hearts are so beautiful and I realize the pain they've been through of falling off the path and how that has burned into them a compassion that is such a payoff for them. In terms of the changes that one goes through, one must recognize that even though you see where you're going, it is important that you honor where you've been. And that involves grieving. It involves acknowledging and giving space to. Because when you move from like the whole initiation rites of going from childhood to adulthood, there is a process in the initiation of leaving childhood behind. And so for us, as we go in spiritual journey, There is a loss of the dreams we were functioning under, of the models we were functioning under. And you have to slow down enough to bury the dead, to sort of allow the thing to have its completion in the process of going on. You don't wanna get obsessed with it, but you don't wanna push it away. And often, in our culture particularly, I see people unwilling to grieve, unwilling to honor where they've been, I'm willing to honor the losses because if you've built a whole world on a myth of happiness coming from a certain thing and then you get there and you realize that you've been had, that it isn't what it's about, think of the investment of the depth you've invested in that myth. And you can't just say, well, that's over now, I'll go on. You have really got to grieve for it and allow it to have its completion. And I think we're in between and learning how to grieve for the dream of our innocence through all of the stuff that went on in our childhood, grieve and then go on, and grieve and then go on. And I invite you to play with that balance. Don't get caught, don't push away. Don't get caught, don't push away. And this for me is the the truth of the relationship between personality and spiritual dimension, spiritual perception. That I feel it is this kind of intimate dance that my personality, my karma as manifest through my personality guides me into spiritual practices. The spiritual practices lead me to re-perceive my personality. The re-perceiving leads me to come back and do more work in my personality from a different point of view. The different point of view leads me to new spiritual practices or doing the practices from a different place. As I come into these practices, there's more space. In this presence of space, certain personality stuff arises that I never noticed before. And it's like skimming soup. And then I go back and I skim some more and then I go back into my practice. And there is no dishonor as a spiritual person in working with personality stuff, working with childhood abuse, working with uh, neurotic relationships and all that. The only thing is it is like the garden of infinite delights. It's incredibly seductive and you must balance it all the time with very deep spiritual practices in order to not get sucked in and but you've got to be very aware because many of us in the west have fallen for it of getting into very high spiritual states by pushing away our personality stuff and it's still uncooked we haven't dealt with it so watch that balance i don't think any of us are masters at this game yet that i know of i mean westerners um so it's grieving letting go grieving letting go letting the models die um and uh, I think part of that is becoming comfortable with the idea of death and your, your non-existence in the form you've been attached to. Grieving your own death this is an interesting way of saying it. Rilke's line is so beautiful that one can contain death, the whole of death, can hold it in one's heart gentle, and not refuse to go on living, is inexpressible, is inexpressible. To live this moment, not denying the fragility of the forms. It's like looking at suffering, to keep your eyes open and looking at what is to look at the violence, the cruelty, the greed, the fear, the agitation, the lust, the doubt, all of it, the sloth and torpor, all of it. To look at it all, look at it all and have the perspective of the balance of saying, I am dealing, I am looking directly into the light of the mystery and to not flicker and turn away the mystery of death, to sit with it and from out of that to act, all I can say is, wow, it's incredible. It is incredible. And the statement, it's too much for me, I can't stand it, look again. Look again at who the me is and whether you want to hold on to that me. Saints in India are often called the living dead because they bear the unbearable. It is unbearable. And so instead of pushing away to make it bearable for who you think you are, you surrender who you think you are into the ocean. And then it is bearable because you aren't. Just all is. And out of all of it comes a compassion that is breathtaking. It's the genuine compassion of your deepest truth, and it rises up and your acts towards other human beings aren't because you're good or you're kind or you even want to help them. That's all interesting, but that's not what it is. It's the compassion of the universe rising up in relation to the suffering. It's, it's this dance, it's this incredible tension and, and, and play of form. I spend a lot of time cultivating mindfulness, just an ability to watch my own trips, to watch the way my mind creates expectations, to watch the way I get into judging mind. I, find, I try little techniques, none of which work, but I try them anyway. Like I am such a judgmental person because I am so judgmental of myself because I'm not perfect, and I just can't accept that I'm not perfect. And I judge everybody as not good enough, and I can't, especially the people I work with, because they're extensions of myself, and I can't stand their impurities. It's very hard on all of them. But it's hard on me, too. But I tried an exercise of every time I saw myself judging, to to, to the moment I noticed it, which I usually don't when I'm judging, but the minute I noticed it, to immediately substitute appreciation. Appreciation meaning just an acknowledgement of what is, of the karma that led them to be such a slob, (laughs) or such a fool, or such a sleaze, or such an incompetent person. Not just my, the people I work with, I mean, I'm talking about everybody. <laughs> I'm about all of you, too, you know, I mean, uh, you know. And I've really played and with that image of how when I go out in the woods and I look at trees, I love oaks and I love elms and I love pines that are all scrunched and I love beautiful thises and decaying wood, but the minute I get around humans, I can't see them as trees. I can't appreciate a human the same way I appreciate a tree. And yet the human form and the mind and the heart are all nature. They're all the unfolding of karma, the same way the tree is. And I realize only when I can fully appreciate this form will I appreciate that form.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org.